Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. Hey, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's it's upon us. And this is, uh, by the way, Season 2, Episode 49 of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. We hope that you are entering into sort of this relational space that is warm and inviting and kind of gives you a sense of peace at a deeper level. But the opposite could also be true. You're about to head into something really challenging for you. I think for me, thinking about what my family's about to head into, I have both feelings. I'm so looking forward to slow, silent, enjoyable time with the people I'm closest to in my family, and my daughter will be home from college, and I'm going to be off for a while, and I can't wait to be slow with them. And I also have some family stuff that's on our horizon that my wife and I were talking about the other night, and I'm trying to manage some of the tension and work of what's to come relative to that, because I need a break from it. So she and I were having this discussion. She wants more of that, and I want less of it heading into Christmas, and so we're trying to negotiate what does that look like for us. So she wants us to host one of these gatherings over Christmas, and I want to just go to somebody's house. I don't really want to work. (laughs) So we're having this discussion, but part of it is, what does it mean to relate to people during the holidays? And some of it's so good, and some of it's so hard and awkward. And and, uh, this is a a little on-ramp to revisiting one of the two podcasts that we picked out from this last year that got a lot of attention, and this one's called Does Everything Happen for a Reason? And so Becky and I wanted to revisit this a little bit. If you've never heard this before, this will be great for you to listen to it for the first time. If you did listen to this for the first the first time a while back, it'd be good to listen to it again. There's a lot of really good stuff in this. Does Everything Happen for a Reason? And I was uh, thinking about this earlier today, that our approach to understanding our life, why did this happen, why did that happen, is often sort of formula-based. We have a kind of a default setting that says, we have to get kind of the formula right for things to go right. If I want a good outcome to happen, I have to do certain things to make sure that that outcome happens, because this whole thing with God is just kind of getting my part of the equation right, so that the product of the equation turns out the way it's supposed to, and we don't realize we're doing this, but it's kind of our default setting. And uh, earlier today, I was talking with our friend Steph Hilbury about one of the relational things that Jesus said that is upending. He said, to whom much has been given, much is expected. That's a relational statement about why everything happens in our life. He's saying, look, in our relationship, you and I, um, I know that I've, you have more, you've been given more. And therefore, I have higher expectations, and we automatically default. But Jesus, what about that person over there? I I don't understand why my life is like this, and their life is like that. And I think what Jesus is saying is, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Their story has nothing to do with you and me. This is between you and me alone, 
And I'm telling you, in our relationship, the things that are going on in your life, I'm working in and through to fashion you, redeem you, and release you from captivity. And all of these things are particular to you, because it's a relationship. It's not a formula that you can apply to anybody. And uh, my friend uh, Tom Melton the other day, I was talking to him, and he said uh, something about the comparison between the widow who puts her two little pennies in the pot, and Jesus notices and says, look at that woman, she gave everything she had, versus the rich young man who he asked to sell everything he had, give to the poor, and then follow him, and how we typically look at these two people and say, wow, the widow gave everything she had, and the rich young man wasn't willing to do that. But Tom pointed out, and I thought this was really wise, he pointed out that going from what you have to zero, when you have two pennies, is not that far. And it wasn't her life savings, her two pennies, it's just what she had in the moment. But the rich young man, that his millions or whatever it was, represented his life's savings. And that's what Jesus was asking him to lay down. He said, the two aren't at all the same. It's not like <laughs> it's not like the rich young man had less courage. In fact, Jesus was sad when he went away because he knew the bar that he had raised for him was high. Uh, and it was particularly for that guy that he raised the bar that high. He doesn't use that standard with everyone. So the expectations on that guy were simply because Jesus studied him and felt like this is the thing this guy needs right now. So the rich young man walks away and says, well, why did that happen? Well, the reason it happened is because Jesus is in relationship with him, and he, and he saw what the man needed and threw it out there for him. And the reason that Jesus extolled the virtues of the widow is that he saw something in her that he loved. I'm going all in. So in each case, Jesus uh, deals with us relationally separately, and when you think about the relationships you're about to enter into around the holidays, think about all of the ways those relationships are not like a formula. (laughs) They're very fluid. They're based on influence and surprise and delight and uh, the essence of the person's presence and how it affects you, and all of these things are true in our relationship with Jesus as well, and it it helps us to know, understand, why things happen to us. They happen to us because we're in a fluid relationship with Jesus. And I think also, just in in relation to this episode, when you're thinking through, does everything happen for a reason? We touch on this a a little bit more in the episode, but things happen to other people because of what's going on with them that end up affecting you. If they're your family or your close friends, they just, they end up affecting us. And I think as a culture, our natural default is to want to just be like, I'm just going to stay away from that person because they have stuff going on or <laughs> I don't want to get into their mess or whatever. But we were put here to to partner in suffering with the Holy Spirit and with other people. And we were made for relationships, not just with Jesus, but with other people too. And when we stray away from relationships simply because they're messy and we don't want to get any dirt on us, we're no, really not living out the way that, that, that Christ called us to be. And so there's mess when you're around pe- your family. Um, some of them may have it all together, and it may be warm, and it may be calm, and it may be joyful. And other people may be a mess, and maybe you should just you know think about where where you're being called this this Christmas season, and don't be afraid of messy people because we're all kind of a mess in some way or another. We really do wish you a Merry Christmas, and um, we're going to be going into next week you're going to be going into your new year's routine setting so 
remember the Jesus Center Planner. It is sold out from mylifetree.com um, and group.com, but it's available on Amazon, Christian Book Distributor, and also on Lifeway stores and your c- local Christian bookstore should have it in. And remember, as, as you're in the mindset of exploring how Jesus operates in your life and why things happen to you and not to others, you can't do any better than sinking into the Gospels in the Bible to get to know the personality of Jesus and, and the kinds of ways he relates with people. So if you still have somebody on your list that you th- you've thought, I don't know what to get for them, try the Jesus-centered Bible. <laughs> what a fantastic gift for somebody at this time of year to introduce them to a new way of reading the Bible that prioritizes intimacy with Jesus as you read. So I encourage you to do that as well. So here we go. Uh, that's our little on-ramp into the, the revisit of Does Everything Happen for a Reason? I hope you enjoy. Today, uh, in really all this month, we've been exploring aspects of what it means to follow God's will, and today we're, we have a, a fascinating interview that we're going to listen to, and then uh, Becky and I are going to talk about the interview afterwards. It's, I have a friend named Brad Corrigan, who um, I met many years ago at church, it turns out I n- never would have known this. He 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 never introduced himself this way. He never talked about himself in this way. I just I I think I actually found out from others that Brad was one of three members of this band called Dispatch. Now I had not heard of Dispatch, and that's not unusual because I have weird weird taste in music. But it's a Dispatch is a rock and roll band. They're independent, so they're not on a record label, and they're the biggest independent band um, in history, I believe. In fact, when they they broke up for a time, and before they broke up, they did a farewell concert outdoors in Boston at the Hatch Shell. You might have remember a couple podcasts ago, I mentioned a story about Brad, and when they did this farewell concert, they had, I think it was like 110,000 people showed up for it from all over the world. They're just a mega popular band, and I think it's because I told that story about Brad a couple of podcasts ago, and what a profound thing he did last summer at the Simply Jesus Conference that really uh, Jesus uh, leveraged to make a huge impact in my life. I thought I'd really love to to have Brad tell some of his story. So he's he's a member of this huge touring rock and roll band, and he also lives half the year in a trash dump in Nicaragua, where he started a, a charity called Love, Light, and Melody, that uh, aims to bring light and life into the lives of these people who live in this trash dump, but also ways, economic ways of them uh, pulling themselves out of poverty. And, and Brad started this ministry and lives, lives there for about half the year. The other half of the year, he's touring with a major rock band. And, and uh, Brad's story is remarkable for its twists and turns and, and, and how things... Um, in his life that kind of, when you look from the outside in, you think, wow, rock star, started a ministry, affecting lots of people's lives. You don't always see below the surface of what else is going on there. And Brad is one of the more uh, remarkable, influential people I've ever met. So uh, I called him up, and he was in the middle of rehearsing for their summer tour, which kicks off soon, and he was gracious enough to carve out some time from his rehearsal schedule to talk to me in fact, I'm not even sure if you can hear this in the interview you're about to listen to, but one of his bandmates, I think in the middle of the interview, says, uh, Brad, 
we need to get back to rehearsal or something like that. So Brad was kind enough to carve out some time to uh, to talk with me. So let's listen uh, to to Brad, and he's first going to talk a little bit about his story. I ask him, um, you know, about to to share about the different contexts that he lives in in the midst of his everyday life. So he's going to start with that, and uh, let's listen, and then Becky and I will come back and talk about it. Well, um, I live my life in a world of music and passion and artistry. I've been super blessed that God's given me a um, a, a very young and imaginative, uh, creative mind and a love for music primarily. So I've been a guitar player and drummer in the band Dispatch for the last uh, 21 years and have just gone through a lot of amazing seasons of life with my uh, bandmates, Chad and Pete. And then I also have uh, a world that comes from Nicaragua, Central America. Um, In 2005, I went there on what I thought would be a really quick um, in and out uh, mission trip for four or five days. And my heart just got planted in the Nicaraguan soil there when I met some kids that lived and worked inside uh, their actual city trash dumps. I'd just never seen anything like it before. So since 2005, uh, Nicaragua has been a second home to me, and I started a nonprofit called Love, Light, and Melody in 2007 to serve the kids there through music and sports and film and photography, anything that we could do and bring into the trash dump uh, to allow these kids that were working in the in the fields alongside their parents looking for recyclables to allow them just moments of joy and flying kites and listening to guitar and painting. And uh, ultimately, you know, we've been there for about 10 years now. Now we're using arts in an annual music festival positioned inside the trash dump to get kids in school. So Nicaragua and uh, the beauty and, and spiritual wealth of the families that live in that trash dump have God's used them to completely rewire uh, my heart and just recalibrate my life. So between Love, Light, and Melody and Dispatch, um, those are the two primary worlds that um, that have my heart and influence it. Now, so you're part of a touring band, and you're you have a uh, a ministry you began and fuel in Nicaragua. You have a home in Denver. Do you do you actually feel like you have a home? I would say I have a home in uh, my deepest friendships. I have a home in community, uh, which I'm so grateful for. I mean, I have had a physical home in Denver for about seven years, but I'm actually right now in the process of selling it, just realizing I'm not there enough to justify it. And for the next 18 months or so, I'll be uh, touring with Dispatch more than I'll be um, needing a place to live. So uh, I'll start renting apartment, uh, renting an apartment sometime in the next few months. Hmm. Wow! And what, Brad? What did you think you were going to be doing when you were growing up? What What did you expect to be doing in your adult life when you were growing up? Hmm. Well, that's such a good question. I think I had dreams of marine biology in elementary school, and then like just like George, in... just like George on Seinfeld. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> somewhere in. Uh... Somewhere in junior high or high school, I think that shifted over to, well, I don't live by the ocean. I live by the mountains. So um, environmental studies and camping and imagining, you know, working in a national park or, you know, working to protect animals. I mean, I just love 
absolutely love the outdoors and love creation and find my closest connection to to God is definitely when I'm in the midst of awe, you know, just seeing his created beauty and feeling like the, yeah, just seeing a cathedral in the presence of something beautiful. Um, and then, you know, I really enjoyed sports and I love encouraging people. So coaching uh, also just seemed like it would make sense. And I didn't, I, we really did not intend to, to build a band and go on to it, but thankfully we had, three sets of parents that were all completely behind us and Chad and Pete and I had a lot of fun and just thought we would do it for a couple of years and it snowballed into uh, being a band. Yeah. I, I think a couple think quick things out of that. Uh, did you also imagine that one day you'd be a husband and father with children and that that was going to be a part of your life or was that something you never really thought about? Oh gosh, very much. I I think because of how much I loved my own dad, um, and also, like, I remember, I think when I was 10 or 11 years old, uh, I played baseball on a team where I did the math, and my buddy who was playing first base, you know, like, his dad was the coach, and his dad might have been 32 or 33, and I was like, oh, man, I can't wait to, whenever I'm 2-1 or 2-2, 21 or 22, I'll have kids, and I'll be a coach of the team, and yeah, man, I always thought that uh, getting married young and having a family um, early on in my life, that was my kind of my ultimate dream. And it's been the most interesting uh, non-reality in my life. Um, you know, I, it was really painful, I would say, from maybe being 25-ish until fairly recently, maybe even five years ago. I'm 42 now, so 37 or 38 so at 13 years, I'd say I really just every day kind of woke up with the pain of, man, I'm not married. And it doesn't seem like that's happening right now in the midst of all my travels. And God, why would you create my heart with this much love in it for family? And then, you know, uh, just close your eyes to it. And only in the last five years would I say I found real contentment. I still have the exact same desire. I, I can't wait to be married, and I really hope to have a wife and kids, but now I see that God doesn't, um, he doesn't miss anything. And all that's been stored up in my heart for family has been poured into Nicaragua to be a spiritual papa to so many kids. And now in South Dakota on a reservation called Pine Ridge and in Denver, Colorado at the Sun Valley Youth Center. I mean, my love for children and wanting to protect and provide and, you know, serve and uplift them is is coming from my dad, the daddy heart that's in me. Uh, but I do, I still hope and pray, you know, daily that I'll have a, um, a a closer knit family of my own. But who knows? You know, God's the author there. Yeah. And so, uh, looking from the outside in, here here's Brad Corrigan, part of one of the biggest bands in history. Um, he's a, a rock star, touring the world, helping people in Nicaragua uh, uh, in a profound way, and yet. Uh, Past that that surface exterior, you have, um, you know, it, it's too. It sounds cliched, but uh, to Paul, it felt like this painful thorn in his side that wouldn't be taken away, and he didn't understand why. And did uh, how have you tried to process relative to God's intentions in your life? You kind of touched on it a little bit, but how have you tried to process the dichotomy of this when? Uh, a lot of people looking at you from the outside and said, well, wow, 
what more success could you want than that? And and yet there's there's something else that it, it has this edge of pain uh, pressing into you underneath everything. Well, I think uh, wherever a place of wherever a place of pain exists like that, that really is that becomes your most intimate um, anchor in your relationship with Jesus. I mean, if Jesus is going to be more than a concept. If God is going to be more than a word written on paper and, you know, that lives inside a book, there has to be a, a point in your life um, that just keeps you coming back over and over and over again saying, God, are you real? And I don't think you are today. And I feel so old. And how long will you forget my desires? And how can you be a good God if you've created me to feel X, Y, and Z and you've left that, you know, unmet and... And then, like the Psalms, you most of the time come back to a place where you really do, you believe more than you unbelieve, like 10 minutes I can do. Um, you, you choose to believe more than unbelieve. And I think that's probably the hardest part, um, is like every day testing, is God's goodness tied to a desire of mine, or is God inherently good? Is God an amazing author and the one who should keep who I would want to keep the pen in his hands, or am I convinced that I might be able to that I might be able to author it better and and grab the pen and write my own story or write you know uh, what I think God should be doing? So I don't know, man. I don't. It doesn't have to be the same thing for someone over an entire lifetime. And I do hope that that I am given the gift of having a, a wife and kids and. But if that happens, there will be something else for sure that keeps me tethered really closely to how how much I need God as a provider and protector. And, you know, there there would be a new, a new thorn, so to speak, just yeah. to keep the orientation there. Yeah. I know you need to, to get going here and, and get back to rehearsal. Let me ask you one last question related to this. Uh, on our, On this podcast, we talk a lot about the difference between our default setting with God, which is typically a transactional relationship, even if we, um, even if we're unaware that that's what's happening in us, and I hear some of that uh, not only getting exposed, but you moving through that in your own relationship. What helped you to move through this uh, place where you you said in the last five years you've reached a a better place of contentment? What do you think helped you to move? out of this place where you would even feel tempted to kind of make it happen, like some pressure like, well, God, maybe you need me to do more about this so that the desire of my heart can happen. Maybe if you're not moving, I need to move. So there's that temptation to kind of make it happen. So what how have, what helped you to move from this place of sort of a our, our universal transactional relationship with God to something else? you're asking that question, I'm like, how has that happened? I would say it's it's been a slow, gradual turning, you know, like literally me feeling like, man, I have, a lot of people think I've, I've got, a, you know, like from the outside, what a, what a life or what a ministry or, you know, God's given me a really, um, uh, a relational gift. I love people and I love connecting deeply with people as much as I'm able. And so I think a lot of people would look at me and, and think, well, gosh, he's got a, his heart is completely full. 
And, you know, if I'm looking at my own heart and thinking, oh, it just feels vacant and it feels unknown and people just want a quick picture with me or they want, uh, you know, an autograph or just to come to a show and leave and, and I'm not known and I'm not beheld and now I don't have a family unit to come back to and my bandmates do and, you know, I, I think I just got to a place where I was like, okay, if God, if God is, if he, if he is real, there is no way he screwed this up. All right, Lord, I'm going to get, I'm going to let you have even the tiniest little uh, amount of, of space to show me that you are in control of this, you know, and, and then I would stop running and kind of turn and look and be like, could this really be the best story for my life right now, today, like right where I am? Could this be the best story ever written for me? Well, I mean, it, I suppose it could be. And then I would look around and see friends of mine who had reached for relationships too soon and, you know, were kind of on the rocks of their marriages or, you know, friends that were struggling with X, Y, and Z. And, you know, just, just had a moment to look and see, you know, where I am. God set me completely free to encourage and come alongside lots of people and, to be really close with my own family, my own, like my parents, my grandmother, my sister, brother-in-law, being an uncle, like I have so much depth and so much freedom that I can look at that and be grateful for it, or I can completely miss it and just keep saying, God, where are you? How come what I want in my own life hasn't landed yet? And I would say maybe five years ago, I just started to slow down and stop running and kind of acknowledge that like, Okay, it's time to either believe God's got the best story, or 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 there's no God at all. Like I don't want to be anywhere in between. Mm. And in that five years, I think He really has shown me that He is He is the author of authors, and He is the artist of artists, and He's got me where He wants me to be. And you know, and every day, every day, I wrestle with God: Are you real? And are you real in my life? And have you blinked? And every day, by the end of the day, most days, I'm like, man, I just know you're there. And I know that I'm a character in a story that you care so deeply for, so I'm going to trust you with it. Okay, so, wow. I just love talking to Brad Corrigan. I love his heart, and I, I love how he has processed these uh, painful dissonances in his life. I love how he's the same person in every environment that he's in. He doesn't change or compartmentalize his life between these environments. I love how um, authentically he lives his life um, and and how honest he is about what that looks like in the seasons of your life. I'm, I'm wondering, Becky, since this is the this is the first time you heard the interview, what, what sticks out to you uh, initially from listening to that? One of the the first things that he said that I I thought was really powerful was um, when he said, my home is in relationships. When you asked Mm. him, where do you live? And he said, my home is in relationships. Mm. I thought that was a really insightful thing to to say, especially here he is kind of bearing the pain of the loneliness of single dumb. And um, I actually was just spending some time this weekend with a couple of people who are, um, you know, in their 50s and kind of realizing that they'll be single for their for their life and they were also just kind of openly sharing just the loneliness and pain that that has been and and I think that 
home is in my relationships was just a really good way for him to have that perspective. What do you think that means exactly, that my home is in my relationship? How does that resonate for you? Well, I think we tend to think of home as like a place with a lot of things in it. And inside that home, we've got people running around and there's life and all of that. And um, But when you're not anchored to a specific location and your life is moving all around, then you might feel like I don't have a home. And that that's a hard thing to feel like. I don't have a home. Um, but he feels like his home is wherever he is in the relationships he has in, in Nicaragua. And I mean, he said the word, I'm a spiritual papa um, to a lot of these kids in um, Nicaragua. And it's living out his dream to be a father in a different kind of way, in a really impactful way, actually. I think we have this interesting relationship around uh, inexplicable pain in our life or inexplicable disappointment or inexplicable unrealized expectation in our life, it creates dissonance that gets our attention, and we have to resolve the dissonance somehow. Sometimes we resolve the dissonance by raising our fist to God and saying, well, you must not exist. If you're not going to care about this, then you must not exist, and that's how we resolve the dissonance. But that doesn't really resolve the dissonance in the end. Always the raised fist to God is a raised fist to God. <laughs> I mean, you're not raising your fist to the nothing. You're, you're, you're in conflict with a someone when you do that. And so it doesn't really resolve it because you can't talk your way out of the, the uh, part of that pain is believing that there is a God who's good who would allow this to happen. And how do we, re- how do we reconcile that? So we, we do lots of things. We, we tell ourselves stories about things, and, and I think some people could listen to Brad's story and say, well, is he just making lemonade out of lemons here? You know, is he kind of trying to resolve his dissonance by saying, this, yeah, this really stinks in my life? But here's the good side of that, which is, which is a strategy that we use. Here's the good side of that. Or another strategy we use is, well, at least I'm not blank. At least this isn't true about my life. At least I have this. All of these are ways of trying to sort of take the edge off, or in the case of when Paul said that he had been given a thorn in his side, a messenger of Satan, that we've talked about before on the podcast, how do you deal with the pain of that? Paul had dissonance too. I like that he said pain is an anchor to Jesus. That if if he if God resolves this pain in his life, so let's say that you know um, he finds a wife and um, he has the family that he's that he's been longing after. What he was saying was, then there will be a new pain. Some new pain will have to emerge because ultimately that pain God uses pain in our lives as a way to anchor us to him because otherwise we just get all happy about the way our lives are and we stop needing God in our lives. And really the issue there, uh, just just to just to focus on that for a second, the issue isn't that somehow Jesus has deemed it that we must always have pain in our life. What he's interested in is dependence. We always have to remember what, what he's really after here, because dependence the, the branch in the vine, the bride and the bridegroom, you and me, I and you, he makes a humongous deal out of dependence, especially as he's headed toward the cross, and he's trying to give his disciples some uh, important context to reframe their rea- reframe their reality as he's heading to the cross. He talks about this 
idea of dependence over and over again in different ways as he's headed there. He thinks it's really, really important that they remain dependent. And when he uses the vine, the branch and the vine illustration, he's saying the branch can do nothing apart from the vine. Guys, I'm trying to get through to you with this. If you remain separate from me, your source of life is cut off from you, and there's only a growing deadness in you. You must remain attached to me in order that life in me can come through you. So this is his end game, really, and pain is one way to leverage that. Some people depend upon Jesus without the leverage of pain. I mean, that's actually part of our process of of maturing as followers of Jesus. Paul says, yeah, I've had a lot of terrible stuff happen to me, and I've had a lot of great stuff happen to me, and I've lived, I've learned how to live in either. I've learned how to live with nothing, and I've learned how to live with a lot. So he's saying, I'm dependent on Jesus, no matter whether there's a lot of great stuff happening or whether there's a lot of terrible stuff happening. I think that he's painting a picture of what Jesus hopes for in the maturing of our relationship. And I want to just take a minute to talk about why this idea is revolutionary. Because when we talk about our walk with the Lord and what that looks like, we have a tendency to focus first on obedience. Hmm. Um, We want to go straight to get right, get right with God, and then everything else will come into play. And the difference between what Rick is describing and what a lot of us have have grown up in the church understanding is that dependence happens first and attachment happens first. And then the outcome of that is that suddenly obedience follows that. But when we're trying to just get right, get right, got to get right with God, which means that we have to put on something ourselves and figure it out ourselves. And not that there's, and we're going to talk actually, I think in a couple of weeks on when we get the the next month's theme, I'm going to tell you right now, next month's theme boom, is um, going to be on discipline. And we're going to do it in a fun way. We're going to have a fun time with discipline. Um, so, you know, be looking forward to that. But so we do have things that we have to do, but there, this is a revolutionary way of, of living with Jesus. And I think Rick has been doing this for a long time and I'm, you know, still relatively new to it where we just give up and we give in and we attach ourselves to him. And then what happens is he just starts coming in and he starts doing all the work for us. And it's, well, and his, then his life fuels, it fuels, fuels what you do, what you needed to yeah. get over things or to move on from things. And so I just, for those of you out there listening, just, you know, this is a different message than, oh, well, you've got some stuff in your life. Let's, let's tackle that. He wants to tackle that with you. Yeah, I love, I love something that Brad said prior to this thing that you pointed out, Becky. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote this down as something that struck me. Uh, is Jesus more than a concept? Mm. That is such a powerful question. Because if you remember, in the context of our conversation with with Brad, I was asking him, how did this uh, ability to come to peace with this great pain in your life, how did that happen? And he, he's talking about this gradual, slow process, but part of that is the, answering this question, is Jesus more than a concept? It, um, I think we treat Jesus as a concept more than we realize that we do. And what he's really saying is, either he's real or he's not. And I find myself saying this a lot, uh, uh, 
especially around prior to um, leading a small group that we have every week in our house. You know, sometimes with my wife and my daughter, because I do some what you might call experimental ways of engaging people in the pursuit of Jesus' heart, there's nervousness sometimes, like, wow, is this going to be a big failure tonight? Is this going to blow up finally? And so there's some nervousness around this, and and when we get afraid, we 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 want to lean in with control. We want to control the outcome because we don't want the pain of an unrealized outcome. And and so I'll often say to them, in a lighthearted way, not in a serious way, but I'll often say to them, is Jesus real or not? Is he a concept? Or is what we are saying about him really true? Is he active and living, and does he do things? Does he come through? When he says, I want you to be dependent, and we are, can we expect life to come into us as a result of that? Or is it all just a concept? Is it all just something we tell ourselves that might be true, but when it really comes down to it, we don't really believe it, because when it really comes down to it, concepts don't come through for us, only people do. So I love that he asked, is Jesus more than a concept? And then after that, he said uh, the, the very thing you're referencing here, this point at which you come back and back and back to him. Mm-hmm. And, and that is really the point, that, that he wants a life with us where we come back and back and back to him, where we are abiding in him. And then we get—this is really for us, because we get to experience his life coming into our life. And so in the end, we have to decide, if God is real—this is what he says, but this is what Brad says— if God is real, then there's no way he screwed this up. Mm-hmm. What is that trying to get at? It's trying to say, if if God is real, and I've experienced his heart as good, how do I re- uh, reconcile the fact that I feel this great pain in my life— he, he's kind of saying, well, maybe this is the best story for me. Maybe I don't know what I don't know. And I think about, um, uh, we have we had two cats. One in the last year got snatched and eaten by a ratty old coyote. I hate that coyote, wherever that coyote is. But now we have one cat, and that one cat's name is Penny, and she's quite an eccentric cat. She's deaf, and she's like an old grumpy man with a shotgun on a porch. That's That's our cat. That's just what she is. So for some reason, for some reason, Penny the cat needed a bath a while back. I can't remember why my wife decided that Penny needed a bath. And you know if you're a cat owner, uh uh-oh, that's a bad idea. So... I, I, for some reason, Penny needed this bath. I can't remember why. She, she got she something got, spilled on her. She got something on her. So we had to put her in the bath. And you, if you could see Penny's face as she realizes, what? You're putting me in the water? She's just freaked out by the whole thing, and she's flailing and scratching. And, of course, Penny the cat does not understand that we're about to do a good thing for her. In fact, there is no possible theological explanation for Penny the cat for why she has to be dunked in the water. I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever. And yet our heart is good toward her, even though we know what she's plunging into is she's not going to understand, and it's really too hard for her to even conceive of a good reason for this. And I'm not trying to diminish the painful, hard things that happen to us by comparing them to a cat in a bath, but in a way, everything rests on whether we have experienced and trusted the heart of Jesus— and if we do, I think we do what Brad did when he says, is this the best story for me? He's kind of leaning into the goodness of Jesus here, and he's saying, okay, I don't get it, 
and I would not write my story this way, um, but I do trust the heart of Jesus, So, and I believe he's involved in, my, in writing my story. So I think this progression in him is slowly embracing that reality. It's almost like learning how to hug a porcupine, you know? Um, I'm going to embrace this pain instead of resist it or fight it. I'm going to start to embrace it. And I loved why that he said it was a slow, gradual turning toward this. And what, one thing that, uh, that he said in the midst of that, and I thought this is a good thing to ask the Becky Nader here. So he said, if God is really in control, do I trust him with this? And what is this? What, what does it mean, actually, that we were talking about this earlier today? What does it mean that, quote-unquote, God is in control? We, we throw that phrase around a lot. So, so what do you think we mean when we say that, Becky? And what, how does it contrast with what's actually true in your mind? Well, I think that we probably mean that if God is in control, then everything that I want is going to work out. Um, he actually even said, "If is God's good, goodness tied to a desire of mine? So we've talked, uh, this month we've talked a few times about the American dream. And so I think that we all have a certain idea from childhood about what our life is supposed to look like, the best version of what our life is supposed to look like. And so if God is in control, then he is in control of making that happen for us. And we may, you know, mess things up and other people mess things up in, along the way. But if he's in, in control, then he's out there working all the systems to try and get things back on track so that we can have the life that we desire to have in our minds. I think that's what we mean. And I think that's, I think that's accurate. And I think the, the contrast with what's actually true that we see Jesus relating with people and relating with us is... Uh, Jesus doesn't want to be in control. He wants to be in relationship. Yeah. That's the difference. Jesus wants to be in relationship. He wants to do stuff together. And he, and in order to have a deep, intimate relationship, those are only based on a deep level of trust, even when the other doesn't appear to come through or disappoints you. And we are often disappointed by God and His movement in our lives so what does it mean to have an intimate relationship? It means that those disappointments don't deter us, um, because there's, uh, our heart has been captured at a level above the, 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 basis, the basic of God coming through for us. So it doesn't mean that, that, of course, that He doesn't come through for us, but in Brad's story, what you hear is something different than that. Mm-hmm. It's a, um, what if intimacy in my relationship with him is the end game and not and and it doesn't diminish my pain i still have it i still have my longings but i'm going to live with my longings live with my desires without trying to quash them while i simultaneously accept the love of jesus in my life and learning how to hold that without a white knuckled grip and last week we talked about, um, so we had a very controversial to- um, ha- headline to our podcast. There's some questions that about whether wrote, or not we love Jesus or not. That wrote, by the way. The Becky wrote that. It's titled, Jesus was the worst self-help guru ever. And the reason why I like that title is because self-help books are about um, helping you achieve the American dream. That's what their goal is, is to help you create the ideal world. And the reason why Jesus is the not most ideal self-help guru is because he, he, he sees a different 
version for for him in Brad's life that has been a singleness that's been a lot of months on the road that's been a reality of hey I don't really need this house that I have I'm going to sell it and live in an apartment when I'm in the United States because I'm not here very often that is the dream that he has created for Brad and that's the opposite of self-help. So if you didn't listen to that episode, you should go back. Don't be afraid of it. We love Jesus. <laughs> well, and, and what's interesting is that Jesus is obviously, he's not a self, self-help guru, no. but he is a, a helper. Yes. I mean, that's actually one of the names of the Holy Spirit is helper. But he help, the Holy Spirit helps us in the most profound ways possible mm-hmm. by reattaching us to the vine again to talk about that whole issue of dependence. And by the way, in the Jesus-centered life, there's a whole chapter in, in the back two-thirds of the book called Needing Him to Know Him, and it's it's simply about the role of dependence in, in our the depth of our knowing of Jesus, and Brad talks directly about that. What if, uh, w- would you rather have a pain-free life, or would you rather have a life that sometimes drives you to dependence on Him so that you know Him at a deeper level? And most people who do know Him would say, I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take that. I thought we could transition into in the last part of the podcast here to uh, a parable that some of the those of you who are pigs, meaning those of you who have asked to be a part of our special face group book called The Pigs, which is uh, people who have um, passionately gone all in with Jesus, uh, sometimes because they can't help themselves. They're pigs, not chickens. That's what that refers to. The pig goes all in, the chicken just gives... The egg for the meal, the pig gives all for the meal. That's why we call that the pigs. So um, one of the people in the pigs group said, hey, are you ever going to talk about um, Jesus cursing the fig tree? What the heck is that about? So uh, I think it's a good transition from what we're talking about right now to just briefly take a look at this bizarro little thing that happened with Jesus. So I'm going to read it out of Mark, and then Becky and I will talk about it for a second here. So... uh, this is Jesus um, just outside of Jerusalem. Um, he's on his way to the cross at this point, and he's with his disciples. And we pick it up in uh, chapter 11 of Mark, verse 12. The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, and that's they was the, Jesus and the disciples, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and he noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves, because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. So then right after that, there's this scene where Jesus clears the temple of the money changers. And then right after that, that evening, it says that evening Jesus and the disciples left the city, so they left Jerusalem again. And the next morning... As they passed by that same fig tree that he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Hey, have faith in God. I tell you the truth, you can say to this mountain, May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it'll happen. But you must really believe it'll happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything— And if you believe that you've received it, it'll be yours. But when you're praying, first forgive anyone you're holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. So there's this bizarre little story. So rude. Yes. He didn't even give it enough time to become (laughs) like 
the season for fruit. Just like, oh, I decided you're irrelevant. I'm just going to curse you. <laughs> such a weird story. So there's some interesting things, I think, to talk about here. Uh, the the One of the first ones is, so this fig tree, uh, again, when we come to a mud puddle like this, so a mud puddle is a place where you normally just jump over and go, I don't get that. I'm just going to go past it. Instead, we wallow in it. We stop and wallow in it. Which means we be honest and we say, that's just rude, Jesus. <laughs> that's right. And you sink down into the puddle and you and you start asking questions and you pay ridiculous attention to the story because we know some things that the, the fig tree was in full leaf and uh, fig trees usually had fruit on them before, they had figs on them before they leafed. So they're approaching this tree from far off, and they see a fig tree with leaves. So Jesus is, and the disciples' expectation was, well, even though it's out of season, and there's some that would say that, that fig trees can produce fruit like 10 of the 12 months of the year, so the, the seasons are a little bit sketchy as far as expectations, but they saw a tree that actually had leaves on it, so they had an expectation that, well, if it has leaves on it, it's going to have figs on it. And they Jesus gets close and realizes, hey, there are no figs on this thing. Lazy tree. That's right. And then he says, and it doesn't appear that he's saying this so that he can be heard. It doesn't appear that he's trying to make this a teaching moment. And I wonder if the tone of his voice is a little different than we normally would think. What tone do you think that he's using, It could Rick? be when he says, then Jesus said to the tree, and we, we normally think of it as, May no one ever eat your fruit again. That's how I heard it. He could. So what rude. if Jesus said to the fig tree, and he's speaking to a tree, by the way? So, A, that's a little eccentric. Um, so he's speaking to the tree. What if he said it like, <laughs> May no one ever eat your fruit again? Yeah. It, what if he was as sarcastic and as glib? And as offhand as we often are in our relationships, what if he just said that to the fig tree in the most offhand way? Ooh, could Jesus say offhand things? I think so. I think he was I th- funny. I think he said offhand things. And I then, think that people liked him a lot, and so he must have been a little bit funny. I think he was a lot funny. I think he was a lot more enjoyable than people give him credit for. But then it has the, the rest of the story is the next morning they go pass by the fig tree again, and oh my goodness— it's withered from the root up. And then Jesus says, out of that, now this is important, it says, then Jesus said to the disciples. So he's now they've paid attention to this withered fig tree, and he's he wants to make a point about something. He says, have faith in God, I tell you the truth, you can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown in the sea, and it will happen. So he's trying to get across something about the, his nature. They don't quite get or understand the nature of Jesus here still. The centurion gets it, as we've mm-hmm. talked about before. The centurion understands that Jesus has authority over everything. So he has authority over the elements, we know, over the water. He walks on it. He commands storms to calm. He has authority over sicknesses and diseases. Over, and demons. He has authority over demons. Is there anything Jesus does not have authority over? Jesus is trying to get this idea planted in the disciples. Hey, there is nothing I have. I don't have authority over. And when I walk up to a fig tree, and it has leaves on it, but no figs, and figs don't grow, look, hey, fig tree, it's over for you. <laughs> but he, why couldn't he have just done something a little nicer? Like, why couldn't he? They were hungry. Obviously, they were looking for food. Why couldn't he have walked up to the fig tree and said, produce fruit, and it just grew fruit, and he did a miracle? 
Well, why in, did he have to kill the tree? In the presence of life, why isn't there life showing up? He's. I think he's making an exclamation point. Um, uh, point in a in a in kind of a fun way. So that remember the thing that withered is is a fig tree. So I don't know what kind of relationship you have with fig trees or whether you have compassion for the fig tree. I don't All find life. A, I don't find a lot of compassion in myself for the non sentient fig tree. I, I like I'm not mourning that the fig tree withered, but there is an exclamation point here that he's trying to um, plant in the disciples' mind. So you're asking, why, why didn't he just ask the fig tree to grow or whatever else? He, it, it, when it says, then he said, hey, if you have faith, you can tell that mountain to go over there, and it'll go over there. He's, he's trying to say, my words and my authority have great power, and um, I'm about to transfer that authority to you guys. I need you to understand how big a deal this is, that I can speak to this plant or speak to the storm, and it's not just me doing this. I'm about to give you the authority that I have to go into the world with that authority and do what I do. So for me, I think he's—the you know, question about why did he have to do something so kind of hard, well, because it was memorable. <laughs> the disciples were riveted by this, and they told that story in two of the Gospels because of it. it there was something about Jesus making a big point about his authority here, and that he is the source of life, and that this plant was sort of in disobedience. <laughs> if a plant can be in disobedience. So that's my shot at it. Um, we'll see if any of you uh, pigs have something to say about this. But the, Which is the, a, a good lead-in to, if you haven't joined the pigs yet, there's yeah. a link in here. You can join the pigs. There's already a very lively discussion about this story oh, yeah. actually going. So this will just increase the liveliness of that story. So you can join in. And you can see what other people are saying about it, too. But it does get back to the, this whole idea, is God in control? And what does that mean, that God's in control? Um, and I said, uh, Jesus doesn't want to be in control, he wants to be in relationship. Um, and th this this idea also that he has authority, so he wants to be in relationship, but he very much wants to, us to know that he has authority, and that he is the source of life in the midst of that relationship. And so is he is he in control? Well, he's quite powerful. He doesn't want us to forget that, that... Uh, and so in our life, the fact that this painful thing is not gone yet, we have to come to grips with, of course, he has the power to uh, remove the thorn from Paul's side, or Paul wouldn't have begged him to do it, and Jesus wouldn't have said, I'm not going to do it. He has the power to do it. He has authority to do it, and he chooses not to. And, the, and Brad's story is a story of how do you resolve the dissonance of that. And in the end, the dissonance can, I believe, can only be resolved in, in the tasting and seeing that the heart of Jesus is good. That, uh, that this great power, this great authority, is in the hands of someone good, deeply good. And even in this story, which doesn't appear to make sense, hey, there is no reason for the fig tree to be withered. Jesus just let it be withered. It is really much like Brad's story. There's no reason for me to still be single, but yet I am. And in the end, what he does is comes back to trusting the heart of Jesus no matter what. All right, thanks again for listening, everybody. 
Remember, you can find out more information about the things we talked about here today, but in further detail on the JesusCenteredLife.com page, and our podcast section there is what you're looking for. This is Season 2, Episode 49, and again, it's Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from LifeTree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest podcast, and we'll talk again next time. Bye.